0: title of our sermon this morning is Raising a Standard for Truth, Christian Education and the Mission of the Church. And we'll look at various texts this morning and considering this particular subject. We're considering the subject of Christian education and the role of the church uh, in that endeavor. And I'd like to begin with a bit of a civics lesson, since civics really isn't taught in public schools any longer, (laughs) we can discuss that some here. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is the first of 10 such amendments that form our Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, the first clause of that amendment is referred to as the Establishment Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The Establishment Clause prohibits governments from establishing or sponsoring one religion over another. The second clause of that amendment is referred to as the Free Exercise Clause. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. The Free Exercise Clause is to protect the liberty of a person to freely form and practice beliefs according to the dictates of his own conscience. Those two clauses together within the First Amendment form what we understand to be our constitutional right to freedom of religion, language that is meant to protect individual freedom from government interference in public or private religious observance, language specifically meant to protect individual freedom from government interference in public or private religious observance. Our Constitution, brothers and sisters, does not give us these rights. Our founders uh, considered those rights to be inalienable, rightly so. They are endowed by our creator. So our constitution does not give us these rights. Our constitution was written to protect those rights given us by God. James Madison said, the people feared that one religious sect might obtain preeminence or two combine together and establish a religion of the state to which they would compel others to conform. Case in point, the Roman Catholic Church, over a thousand years of the Dark Ages. So the First Amendment was written then to protect religious freedom. However, what was established as law to protect freedom of religion has been consistently interpreted by the courts ever since as freedom from religion the courts interpret the first amendment to involve a separation of of church and state that is to quote the courts themselves complete and unequivocal the courts have adopted the untenable position that there are areas of neutrality in life areas that are free from religion increasingly that, that means any public space and that is at the same time that That freedom from religion is at the same time that we see fewer and fewer spaces free from government encroachment. Nowhere has that ideology been made more evident than in the government-controlled, state-funded public education system. The public education system has been built on a myth of neutrality when the education of our kids is anything but neutral. With overwhelming support from a vast majority of professing Christian parents who view the general and public education of our kids as somehow neutral. And with the support of a secular court system devoted to maintaining that myth, God has been struck from the classrooms of public schools. And then that compels the question. If God has been struck from the classrooms of the public school system, then what are the public schools offering as a replacement for God? God. They're not offering neutrality. There is no such thing as neutrality in the education of our children. Having excluded God from their classrooms, the public schools are now offering another kind of religion altogether, and that is the religion of secular humanism. The classrooms of our public school system have become a delivery system for the state's religion. And the state's religion is a religion of secular humanism. The very tragedy that our, found, that our founders hoped to avoid when they penned the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment is the very tragedy that has been brought about through the establishment of a public school system. Our government is systematically forcing upon its people the religion of the state. That's in violation of the Establishment Clause. And the very tragedy that our founders hoped to avoid when they penned the free exercise clause of the First Amendment is the very tragedy that has been brought about through the establishment of a public school system. Our government is systematically forcing Christianity out of the public square, and Christianity is something that you do in private. In Abington v. Shemp, a case before the Supreme Court in 1963 that helped to decide against Bible reading in schools, Shemp... A Unitarian sued the school district for allowing it, and Justice Stewart, the lone dissenting opinion in an 8 to 1 majority decision against Bible reading in schools, Shemp, or Justice Stewart, said this If religious exercises are held to be an impermissible activity in schools, religion, in particular Christianity, is placed at an artificial and state created disadvantage. And a refusal to permit religious exercises thus is seen not as the realization of state neutrality, because state neutrality is impossible, but rather as the establishment of a religion of humanism, of secularism, or at least as government support of the beliefs of those who think that religious exercises should be conducted only in private. The elites that founded the system, our public education system, the elites of today that are managing the system the elites of today that are funding the system, they know that education isn't neutral. James G. Carter once described education by its influence on society and particularly um, as its influence upon young people. He described it this way. It is an engine to sway the public sentiment, the public morals, and the public religion more powerfully than any other engine in the possession of the government. Although... Carter may have intended to sway the public morals in the general direction of Christian principles, his statement is certainly proven to be true, and tragically true, in swaying the public morals in exactly the opposite direction. The effect of one case, court case after another, has been to use the language of our own Constitution to do the very thing that the language of our Constitution was written to prevent, And that has largely been done through a public education system. Secular humanism needs a delivery system. Think of this with me. The doctrine of the church, the doctrine that has been delivered, the doctrine with which we contend earnestly for, that doctrine has been delivered once for all to the saints, according to Jude, according to the Bible. And it's the saints that are held responsible, as it were, to preach the gospel, And to propagate through the gospel that doctrine, the truth of God. The delivery system of secular humanism is the public education system, is the public school system. And one court case after another has supported that delivery system to do the very thing that our constitution was written to prevent. And that has largely been done with the approval of professing Christians. The courts have established the primacy of one religion over another, the primacy of secular humanism over any other religion. The courts have codified a monopoly of religious expression to the exclusion of the Bible in virtually every public space, and now they're refining, they're fighting for a monopoly over the delivery system they used to do it. They're fighting for a monopoly over the schools. They're fighting to outlaw or to regulate into submission any opportunity for any education other than their own. We must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. That is a scheme of the enemy. And why are they doing it? They are doing it because they know that there is no neutrality in education. These are not neutral issues. Education is inherently religious, and education is to be exclusively Christian. The Bible teaches that education is to be distinctively, entirely, and exclusively Christian. Those running, those funding public schools, they believe that man is the measure of all things. Everything has a naturalistic explanation. There's no neutrality in education. They're espousing the ideology that man is the measure of all things. They're espousing the ideology that everything has a naturalistic explanation. The world is only truly understood without God, not because of God. Values are relative to the individual. Morality is a social construct. There is no such thing as sexual perversion. Authority structures, including the family, are evil and oppressive. We're not even subject to our biology. And the only real sin is disagreeing with the ideology. Those, brothers and sisters, are the affirmations of a religious cult. They are the consistent and wicked and godless ideologies that are foisted upon humanity. The idolatries of this world that have persisted for centuries... Those ideologies are at the very heart of what it means to be a God-hating secular humanist. That is today the public school system. It is the enemy's doctrinal primary doctrinal delivery system. It's their church. There's a priesthood there administering their sacraments. There is a magisterium over them interpreting their laws They have virtually unlimited wealth, and at the same time, the entire system is utterly bankrupt. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, describes the futility of participating in such a system, of attempting to transmit uh, even some semblance of virtuous manhood. We might disagree with Lewis's theology, but Lewis is on point with respect to this. Of attempting to transmit even some semblance of virtuous manhood, Lewis said this We continue to clamor for those very qualities that we ourselves are rendering impossible. And that's through the education system. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and we demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh. At honor, and then are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and then bid the geldings be fruitful. The public school system is a castrated gelding. It has no answer for the utter degradation and devastation that it has caused. But, brothers and sisters, we do. We have answers. By the grace of God, we've been given those answers, revealed to us, disclosed to us in his word. And all of the talk simply rings hollow if we're not willing to do something about it. It's time we reclaim stolen ground for the sake of the kingdom. It's time we reclaim stolen ground for the sake of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's time we reclaim stolen ground for the sake of the kids. The education of our children is something that is outside the jurisdiction of the federal government. Jurisdiction is a biblical concept. From juris meaning law, diction meaning to speak. Jurisdiction refers to the authority delegated by God within certain spheres to speak the law. There are those who have authority to speak the law. Fathers, godly fathers, have the jurisdiction to speak the law inside the family. Elders have jurisdiction, as it were, to speak the law inside the church. The federal government has no jurisdiction... No authority, no God-given authority, no delegated authority to speak the law when it comes to the education of our children. They do not have the jurisdiction. And the illicit use of authority is called tyranny. Schools should not be public and under the control of the state. Public education as a system should collapse. The godless monopoly should be broken up. But there is, brothers and sisters, there is a need for schools. It's not schools that are evil, it's public schools that have become evil, and that is a well-established fact. There is a need for schools, not simply homeschooling or homeschool co-ops, but actual schools. There are 50 million students nationwide in public schools, 50 million students. Six million of those, or six million students in addition to those, are in private schools. Two and a half million are homeschooled. Of the children being educated in this country, 96% of them are being educated in schools. We're not going to do away with that fact. Schools can be done biblically and done well. There is a need for schools. There are those who are unable to homeschool. There are those who want to offer their kids more than what they might be able to provide or offer at home. And by coordinating our efforts as members of the body of Christ for the sake of our kids, for the sake of the Lord, we can not only provide an education that will be unmatched in its excellence, but we can provide an education that will be unmatched in its commitment to biblical truth, unmatched in its commitment to the gospel. Only the body of Christ is capable of that endeavor. If we don't do it, who else will do it? There's no one else capable of that endeavor. The education of our children is something that can and should be pursued in the private sector under the authority of parents and to the glory of God. That through homeschooling and that through private founded Christian schools under the oversight of godly Christian Bible-believing churches. We should be founding private Christian schools. Now, our intention of founding a Christian school is not simply a reaction to outrage over the Failures of the public school system. Founding a Christian school is the fruit of two biblical concepts. Founding a Christian school is the fruit of two biblical concepts. One, a biblically informed theology of education, and two, a biblically informed theology of public life. Those two concepts combine to produce or to compel, if you will, uh, our desire to found a private Christian school, a biblical biblically informed theology of education and a biblically informed theology of public life. First, consider with me a biblically informed theology of education. That theology of education begins with a biblical command, and that command is found in part in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn there with me to Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses has just reiterated the law of God to the covenant people of God. People of God have entered into covenant with God at Sinai. God has delivered to them his law. Moses now has come and he's reiterated that law. Deuteronomy means the second Deutero, second giving of the law, namas law. So Moses has reiterated the law of God to the people. And now that they have the law, Moses' concern is their devotion to that law. Their devotion to God through the law of God. Will they follow the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or will they be swept away in the ideologies of this world? Are they going to be swept away by the practices, by the beliefs, by the ideologies of those nations that are around them? Or are they going to cling to the Lord their God? That's Moses' concern as he gives us this text now in Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning in verse 4. Here... O Israel, this is the Shema of Israel. This is something that Jews have recited since this time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's an affirmation of monotheism. There is one God, one God in three persons. But it has the sense here in verse 4 of. Of being an attestation that our God is alone God. Of all the so called false gods of the nations around them, Israel's God was Yahweh. He alone is our God. We could have the same affirmation, amen? This is our affirmation. He alone is God. Of all the false gods on this planet, He alone is God. Therefore, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In reciting this text, Israel is declaring their complete and undivided devotion to Yahweh. Right? Our devotion to God is to be wholehearted, whole-souled. It's to be with everything that we are. It is to pervade every aspect of our life, every aspect of our thinking, every aspect of what we do. Who we are, how we think, what we believe, what we value, how we act, what we imagine, what we desire, what we do. It's all to be influenced, bathed in, submersed in the truth of God and who he is. All is to be done to the glory of God. It's to impact, affect, influence everything that we are and everything that we do. It is to be characterized, that devotion to God, that undivided devotion is to be characterized by great effort, great diligence, With all your heart, that word heart referring to inner being, your inner person, with everything that you are, everything that you think, everything that you believe, everything that you value, your affections, your imaginations, your desires, it is to be with all your soul, that word for soul, referring to the entirety of the person, that person, the entire person created by God, and with all your strength, a word that refers literally to your resources, physical and otherwise. So if you think about this with me, Moses presents this in concentric circles, and he begins in the middle with our very inner being, right? He expands to include the whole person, our bodies and our soul, our hearts and our minds, the whole person. And then he expands further to include what that person does with what he has and with Who he is, right? All of his strength, all of his physical resources, all of his material resources, everything that has been given him by God is to be devoted to the worship, the love of Yahweh. You shall love the Lord your God. How are we to love him? All our heart, all our soul, all our strength. With our whole persons, with everything that we are and with everything that we have, Christ calls this command to love God with all that we are and have, the first and great commandment. The law is fulfilled in this word. Verse 6 And these words, what words is Moses referring to? The words of the Decalogue, certainly, the 10 words, the, the laws of commandments given to Israel in the covenant. But these particular words, the words that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These words, to love the Lord our God, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. They shall be in your innermost being. How so, Moses? We're to meditate on them continuously. We're to think about them continuously. Our love isn't to be expressed merely in external ritual. Those rituals, any ritual that we have is to point to an inner reality. These things are to occupy our thoughts. They're to occupy all of our intentions, our desires, our aspirations, our hopes. We're to meditate on them continuously. Our love should be expressed in devotion. Our desires are for him. Our affections are for him. Our delight is in him. And they're not words of suggestion, they're words of command. These words, all these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. As much as the word is in our hearts, we are then to impress the word of God on the hearts of our children also, on the hearts of others also. Laid to the heart, if they're in your innermost being in that way, they're going to be on your speech. They're going to be coming out of your mouth. Laid to the heart, the words of God become the constant subjects of thoughts and conversation. The word there for teach, you shall di- teach them diligently. It's a word that means, a Hebrew word that means uh, to sharpen, shenin, to sharpen. And it's like one would sharpen an arrow you would sharpen an arrow by whittling a point, by making repeated cuts. So this word, Shanine, has, refers to or it carries the sense of repeated cuts, repeated sharpening, repeated admonitions, repeated teaching. The word refers to repeatedly teaching, constantly teaching the word of God, seizing every opportunity to teach them. And not only to our own children, but as the rabbis would often say, to all those under your care, to everyone under your care. We're to constantly teach them. Eight, Verse eight, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand so that they influence what you do. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They are to influence how you think. Right? Those are, sig- those are symbols, if you will, signifying what a person does and how a person thinks, what a person believes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of God is to be before us, whatever we do and wherever we go. The word of God is to be constantly before our eyes, constantly in our thoughts, everywhere that we turn, constantly upon our speech, so graven upon your heart, mind, and hands that the word fills your conversation. This marks the child of God. You remember from our study of Revelation on Sunday evenings, God marks his children on their forehead. In other words, how do we know a child of God? Because he thinks like a child of God he believes like a child of God. What he values are the values of the kingdom. His loves are directed toward God. His affections directed toward God. His devotion directed toward God. He marks them on his forehead. The mark on their hand signifies what they do. Christians serve the Lord. They're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mark on their forehead uh, signifies how they think. If you remember, Satan also marks his seed. The seed of the serpent is marked by Satan, marked on their forehead and marked on, his, on their hand. You can tell those who are the seed of the serpent by how they think and by what they do. The children of God are to take every possible opportunity. It's what the text is saying every possible opportunity to repeatedly and constantly impress upon our kids and those under our care the word of God. Those particular words that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's to be so such that it has a transformative effect on how they think and on what they do, how they act. This is the high calling of the godly parent. This is the command that God gives you fathers and you mothers. We are called to love the Lord ourselves, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, rooting out any manifestation of half-hearted commitment or half-hearted divided devotion, and we are called to teach that whole-souled love of God diligently, repeatedly, everywhere, and at all times to our children, repeatedly admonishing, repeatedly disciplining, repeatedly instructing, repeatedly correcting, repeatedly encouraging, repeatedly reproving. Everywhere you turn in the Bible, you'll find that mandate with respect to Christian education. You'll find that mandate for parents. And the public schools cannot fulfill it. Cannot fulfill it. That's eight hours of a day where they're being filled with exactly and precisely the opposite. Everything that is contrary to that. Martin Luther said this, I advise that no one places child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not increasingly occupied with the word of God must become corrupt. I am much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures, encouraging them in the hearts of the youth. Where the mistake was first made was in the establishment of a public government-controlled compulsory education system. That's where the the mistake began. Government-controlled schools cannot do this. It cannot. Anything where the scriptures, any institution where the scriptures do not reign paramount are destined to be corrupt. Who can do that? Who are the only ones who can? Godly Christian parents and godly Christian churches who establish and found Christian schools. Schools are necessary, and it's going to be godly Christian schools under the oversight of godly Bible-believing churches. They're the only ones who can. Now, in addition to this command for Christian education, the Bible is also clear about the character of that education. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. These are texts that we're familiar with. So I stir this up here by way of reminder. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is preaching what we call the household table, instructing how we are to conduct ourselves within that sphere And Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There is an established authority. And kids, the Lord has said that if you are to obey the Lord, if you're going to honor the Lord in your life, it begins by honoring the Lord's appointed authority in your home. You obey your parents. As unto the Lord, your submission, your obedience to your parents, exhibits or manifests, displays your obedience and submission to the Lord himself. You are to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, and here it is, verse 4, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training in the piideia and in the admonition, the thessia of the lord it 's in verse four that we find the basic character that should define the education of our children. You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but rather, in contrast to exasperating them, in contrast to cultivating an environment in which there is hopelessness or despair or discouragement, you are to bring them up. The words bring them up there refers to nourishing them, rearing them tenderly. Calvin said that we should fondly cherish them. That's the character of a Christian education. It's not, a, um, it's not an environment or an atmosphere of discouragement. It's not an environment or an atmosphere of, of constant criticism or rebuke. It is an atmosphere in which we tenderly rear them, an atmosphere in which we fondly cherish them for the sake of their souls. If you can imagine with me, when Paul would say earlier that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that Christ's sacrificial love for the church becomes the character with which you are to love your wives, then here, that character should pervade the way that you educate and bring up and train and nourish your children, right? It's to be tender. It's to be nourishing to them, right? Fathers, do not provoke them to wrath, or provoke them to discouragement, or provoke them to um, despair, but rather bring them up, nourish them in the training, the paideia, and the admonition of the Lord. So we would define the character of a God-glorifying Christian education to be this, the paideia and the nuthesia of the Lord. What should be the atmosphere in which our children live? The paideia and the nuthesia of the Lord. What should be the air That they breathe? What should be the pool that they're constantly swimming in? The paideia and the new thesia of the Lord. I won't belabor the meanings of those words. We've gone through those words before, but briefly, the word paideia is used in reference to instruction that is wrought through repetitive discipline. It's instruction that is wrought with discipline. In other words, paideia is not simply the transference of information. Memorize your addition tables, memorize your multiplication tables. Rather, paideia refers to that education being brought to bear on the formation of a a soul, the formation of Christian character. It is the induction of a moral principle. It's education in the pursuit of righteous conduct. Those two things have to go together if it's going to be a Christian education. Paideia is that by which the child doesn't simply learn a subject. Paideia is rather that means by which a child matures into responsible, disciplined manhood or womanhood. And we see the lack of that as the fruit in our current generation of public schools graduates, right, that not being the case, the bitter fruit that the school system is producing. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction. That word is paideia. And it's instruction in righteousness. So that with the intention that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paideia is necessary to Christian character. Paideia is necessary to the formation of Christian character, to that instruction that eventuates or terminates upon righteousness, so that that Young man or young woman trained by it might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Next, nuthesia refers to the content and character of what is said there, the content of what is said, the content of teaching, the content of warning here primarily, or the content of encouragement, a word that is often translated as instruction or admonition or warning. Notice finally, the paideia and nuthesia is to be distinctly and characteristically of the Lord. For those studying the language of the Lord, translates a genitive of source. That means that the paideia and the new Thessia, that discipline, that training, that content, content of what is said, all of that originates with God. And it originates with God alone. It is to be, the source of that is to be God alone. In other words, it's not to be the figment of man's imagination. It's not to be fallen man's secular humanism that produces that. It's not to be man is the center of all things or man is the measure of all things. It is to be everything that we teach is to come from the source of God himself. It originates with him. Math finds its origins in God. Philosophy finds its origins in God. Science originates with God. Math, philosophy, and science cannot be taught apart from God. And it should be taught that way. And, brothers and sisters, who else is going to teach it that way? No one else but a godly mom, a godly dad in homeschool, or a godly church founding a Christian private school. It's not going to be done any, way, any other way. It's not going to be done by the public school system. That's in reference to its nature, or its quality, or its character. Every subject should be distinctively Christian in its character. Why? Because we're not just concerned about the subject itself. The subject is not the ends for why you teach. Why do we teach math? Because of the glory of God. Why do we teach science? Because science terminates upon the glory of God. And I would submit to you, frankly, brothers and sisters, that there aren't many private Christian schools that teach that schools are necessary. 96% of the kids in our country are being taught in schools. They're going to continue to be taught in schools. We need a Christian alternative to this godless, secular, humanist public education system. The atmosphere, the entire atmosphere in which any education is given must be such that the Lord would put his stamp of approval on it. Van Til said this, it follows from this, from this, from this, that the kind of education we give our children must be one which is thoroughly grounded in the Christian worldview and which seeks to subject every discipline to the authority of God's word as it is revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Education is thus inescapably a covenant activity. That command to educate your children, in Deuteronomy chapter six, was given in the context of God's covenant with his people. It is distinctly, education is distinctively, and frankly, exclusively a covenant activity. Indeed, Van Til says, it is a central aspect of man's covenant duty. Hence, to deny our children such an education is to abandon our responsibilities as the covenant people of God. Amen. Cornelius Van Til. <laughs> Now first, founding a Christian school is the fruit of a biblically informed theology of education. We need that education. It is grounded upon the biblical conviction that all of education finds its origin and content and character in the one true and living God of the Bible, and all of education is determined upon his glory alone. Second... Founding a Christian school is the fruit of a biblically informed theology of public life. A biblically informed theology of public life. Brothers and sisters, if it, if it weren't for a biblically informed theology of public life, then there would be no need, frankly, to consider anything outside the homeschooling of our children. There'd be no need, frankly, To preach the gospel, there'd be no need to teach others God's word that the nations may glorify God. There'd be no need for any of that. Why? Because we could teach the Bible and the privacy of our own homes and fulfill that commandment to educate and not worry about anybody else. Us four, no more, shut the door. (laughs) Who cares about everybody else? if that's the attitude that you would want to have. But a biblically informed theology of public life takes what we have, what we've been given by the grace of God, and we preach it and proclaim it and work with it in the world to the glory of God for the sake of sinners that they might be saved. Right? It's the combination of the two that protect us from monasticizing ourselves within the four walls of the church Inside some vaulted cathedral where we talk theology all day long and don't do anything with it. This is a missional effort. It has a missional focus. It has a missional goal. And that goal is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the elect may pour into the kingdom. They're going to pour into the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. And that in part can be done through consistently, constantly over many years, the education, the godly, biblical, Christian education that we can provide lost kids and their parents, frankly. We have to practice these things. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Go to the nations. We're in this world, we're not of this world. In this world, we're to preach the gospel The Lord's concern as he walks amidst the lampstands is a faithful, enduring witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. It is grounded, founding a Christian school is grounded upon the biblical conviction that Christian education is not something that should only be done in the privacy of a Christian home or within the four walls of a Christian church. One pastor said, one implication of the biblical view of education is that teams of parents, together with their church leadership, should be creating thousands of excellent Christian schools. One implication of that biblical view of education is that teams of parents together with their church leadership should be creating thousands of excellent Christian schools. In his book, A Christian Manifesto, Francis Schaeffer said this, we have been utterly foolish in our concentration on bits and pieces. This is after looking back in many decades of the work of the church, so to speak, in this world. And Francis Schaeffer said this, we've been utterly foolish in our concentration on bits and pieces. In other words, in our focusing on individual issues here and there rather than on root causes, (laughs) to quote our government, sadly, Uh, rather than on the larger problem. We've been focusing on bits and pieces rather than on the larger problem. Schaeffer says we've been utterly foolish in our complete failure to face the total worldview that is rooted in a false view of reality. We're not facing that total worldview. And think about where that comes from, where that's being taught. We have not understood that this false view of reality inevitably brings forth totally different and wrong and inhuman results in all of life. A Christian school addresses that worldview at its root. Schaefer goes on. We must not be satisfied with mere words. With the window of opportunity open, we must try to roll back the results of the total worldview which considers material energy shaped by chance as the final reality. We must realize that this view will, will with inevitable certainty, always bring forth results which are not only relativistic and not only wrong, but which will be inhuman. And not for other people only, but for our children and grandchildren and for our spiritual children. It will always bring forth what is inhuman. And that is manifestly evident in our own day, and increasingly so. Increasingly, we see the, the bitter fruits of that secular humanism foisted upon the public, foisted upon our children. It's shocking to me that this is even a debate, right? They're, they're, you talk to kids now who are raised in the public school system and hear the things that are coming out of their mouths. It is shocking. The way that people think. It is shocking what people believe. We have answers to that idiocy, right? Christian, Schaefer says, must practice all the possible Christian alternatives we must practice all the possible Christian alternatives, must not only speak and fight against these things, but must then show that there are Christian alternatives. This is so, and especially so, even when it is extremely costly in money, in time, and in energy. We indeed are to be humanitarian in living contrast to the inhumanity brought forth by materialistic humanism. Nowhere will that be done more effectively in the public square. Nowhere will that contrast be made more evident than in the classrooms of a devotedly Christian school. In reference to a former quote, there is no greater engine to sway the public sentiment, the public morals, and the public religion more powerfully, more thoroughly than a Christian education in which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ lived out in the public square is lived out in the public square as it is preached in the public square. It's not an education for the sake of an education. It's an education for the sake of the gospel. It's an education for the sake of the glory of God. And that's why we are raising a standard for truth among the nations, right? There needs to be a banner raised. And through a Christian school, We'll be raising the next generation to victory through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing kids enter this world as it were, post-graduation, entering this world with what they need to stand against it. Amen? Amen. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the blessed privilege of considering such a thing. Thank you, Lord, for how you've blessed us over many years now with your people knit into the body just so that they might serve you in these ways to help us fulfill the great commission which you've given us. I praise you and thank you over many years, Lord, how you've consistently provided everything that we need, the resources that we need to pursue just such an endeavor. You've guided and directed our steps. You've preserved us. You've protected us. This has been very providential. We see your your. Power at work among us by your spirit through your providence already in this. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue. Continue to prosper this effort. Continue to guide us and direct us. May your wisdom triumph. May your wisdom be justified by our children. And I pray, God, that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would allow us the blessed privilege, the blessed opportunity of founding a Christian school wherein the gospel will be preached to these kids as they receive a distinctively and exclusively and entirely paideia and nuthesia that is of the Lord. And it might be for the glory of your name as we persevere as a faithful witness to our Lord Jesus Christ in this dark and evil, perverse generation. May it be to the glory of your name as we await your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen.